This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for a new day and a day that we can also spend in your word and with one another. We invite the Holy Spirit, Lord, to be present in our midst. I pray that you will make this morning's teaching clear. May we understand and may we be inspired and challenged to serve you faithfully is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told of two men and they were walking through uh, a jungle area in Africa and as they're walking through this area and I don't know if I've said this correctly yes it was a jungle safari they're walking through this jungle and as they're walking along suddenly this great big lion jumps out in the path right in front of them and the two men froze and as they froze one of the guys says to his friend don't move remember that nature book we read about lions it said you just look the lion in the eye and don't move and they won't attack you and his friend, still frozen, said, yeah, but has the lion read that book? <laughs> now, I tell you that story because the Bible tells us that our adversary, the devil, he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you can be assured that the devil has read this book. He knows what we're talking about this morning. He's very aware of God's last message that must reach the world. And he is going to do everything he can to stop us from trying to study it and from trying to understand it. So that's why it's important for us to study it. Now, after John saw the first angel flying in the midst of heaven, the Bible tells us that suddenly he saw a second angel join the first in his flight. And so these two angels are now flying in the midst of heaven. And what does the second angel say? Well, I put it on the screen for you. Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen is fallen that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication so john begins his message and i'm just going to pull this apart he begins by saying and another angel followed in other words this message is to be proclaimed after the first it's a sequential order that is given here to us and not only that but the very first words out of the second angel's mouth is Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. And so the first thing that I'd like for us to unpack together is this, who or what is Babylon? I think it's very important for us to understand because the message that the angel has concerning Babylon is a very solemn and a very serious one for us to, to comprehend. It's a life and death message that we're about to study. Now, here's an amazing fact. This is the first time that we find the word Babylon in the book of Revelation. But the very first time we find the word Babylon in all the Bible is, do you know? It's in the book of Genesis. This is an amazing fact. So it's actually in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 to 10, we can go there together. This is the very first time we find the word. Genesis chapter 10. And the Bible says in verses 8 to 10, Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So there it is right there. Babylon, friends, was one of the first cities that was ever built. And the word Babylon in Babylonian, does anybody know what that meant? It means gate of, oh, sorry, Tom. Gate of the gods. Tom's got it. All right. So it means gate of the gods. And the Babylonians no doubt believed that the gods literally descended upon their city to meet with men and order the affairs of this earth. And the Hebrews would mockingly uh, refer or associate this word Babylon with their Hebrew word Balal, which actually means confusion. 
So this is a very interesting thing. And you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Remember that? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was actually built upon the ruins of the Tower of Babel. And of course, Babel in the Bible stood as a tower or a monument to apostasy and rebellion against God. As such, throughout the Bible, Babylon comes to represent apostasy, rebellion, unbelief, self-exaltation, confusion, defiance, false teaching, and oppression. Sounds like a city Satan could call home, yes? Doesn't sound very good to me. And actually, if you're familiar with a little bit of English literature, I studied to be an English teacher in high school before I didn't do that anymore. And uh, Charles Dickens wrote a very famous book. It's called The Tale of Two Cities. In a very similar sense, the Bible is almost the tale of two cities as well. It's the tale of the city of God, which is Jerusalem or Zion, being where the government of David was, and of course later the greater son of David, who was Jesus. And then of course it contrasts this with Babylon, which was always oppressing God's people. It was the enemy of, of Israel. These two cities, as we watch them throughout the Bible, they come to represent the forces of good and evil at work in our world. It's like the great controversy is pictured right there. And Babylon is consistently depicted as being in a two-front war. A war against the God of Israel and the Israel of God. And this is why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah is impressed to refer or to identify Lucifer as the invisible king of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4, and you can read again verses 12 to 14. And you know what? Here's the another amazing thing about what we're talking about, and that is this. When John penned these words, when he was writing down what he saw in vision, the second angel's message, he was on the rocky isle of Patmos, which is in the middle of the Aegean Sea, and guess what? Babylon lay in ruins. It did not even exist at the time. To this very day, Babylon is still in ruins, and many have tried to rebuild it. I think, um, is it Saddam Hussein? He tried, but it's, not, it's still in ruins today. So if Babylon did not physically, literally exist in the time of John, then we can take one thing from this for certain, and that is this, that Babylon is symbolic here in the Bible. It's, it's, it's symbolism for something. What does it represent? Well, chapter, uh, chapter 17 of the book of Revelation gives us some important clues. And I'm going to read it to you here. Let's read together from Revelation 17, 1 to 3, and verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. What John sees in chapter 17 in vision is something that he is truly amazed about. Now, your students of Bible prophecy, so let's do a little refresher here. A woman in Bible prophecy always rep represents a what? A church. What did you say? A body of believers. All right, I like that too. A body of believers, a church, a community of faith. And here we find also a beast. Now, what does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? A nation, a civil, secular, political power. So when John is seeing in vision, when John is seeing uh, this vision, he sees 
a woman, and she's not just any woman, she's a, she's a harlot, she's an impure woman, therefore she represents an impure church, and she would unite, she's riding on a beast, symbolic of the fact that she would unite with a political power, and what does she do? Well, the Bible says here that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So she unites with this political power in order to, or the, with the state, to shed the blood of the followers of Jesus. Now, there's some pretty good clues there, just right there in front of us, as to who this could be identifying, what this could be. And the, the evidence, in my opinion, is unmistakably clear. The power that for so many centuries maintained dictatorial sway uh, over so, for so many years over Christendom was Rome. The purple and the scarlet colors, the gold, the precious stones and pearls vividly picture the magnificence of the, and more than kingly pomp of Rome. And friends, no other power could so truly be declared as drunk with the blood of the saints as that church which so cruelly martyred and persecuted the followers of Christ. Did you know, this is, a, this is very interesting, sources today estimate that the number of people killed directly or indirectly by the papacy during the Middle Ages was between 50 to 150 million people. That's a lot of people. I was, I was shocked when I, when I discovered that. So friends, whenever church and state unite... It's a bad thing. Whenever church and state unite, it's a bad thing. This is how the Jews ended up killing the Son of God. This is how many Christians uh, uh, lost their lives during the time of the 1260 years, during the Dark Ages when Rome was ruling. And friends, the Bible says that history will be repeated again. Interestingly enough, towards the end of the first century A.D., uh, Christians were already referring to the city of Babylon, uh, by, sorry, to the city of Rome, by using the title Babylon. Here's what first it says in 1 Peter 5.13. These are the words of Peter. He says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does my son Mark. Again, when Peter is writing here to his friends, he is writing at a time in earth's history when Babylon does not exist. Babylon is in uninhabitable ruins. But since pagan Rome at the time filled the role of Babylon with its arrogance and its persecution, Peter felt free to apply the term Babylon to Rome right here. But even more than this, there's more to just Babylon than what I've shared. Revelation reveals that Babylon is actually made up of three parts. Notice what it says in Revelation 16, verses, uh, verse 13 and 14. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So right here, and we referred to this, oh, maybe I didn't refer to this yesterday, but there is a satanic trinity that is mentioned right here. We have the dragon the beast and the false prophet. And what happens? Uh, they have three unclean spirits coming out of the mouth. And verse 14 says, For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So I pointed out to you, I think very briefly yesterday in our first presentation, we have... God has his three angels' messages, and they're going to the world, and the purpose of those three messages is to bring the world together, to unite them, to worship God. It's a revival message. It's a restoration message. It's a wonderful message, the three angels' messages. But at the same time, the Bible tells us that Satan has a counterfeit three angels' message. He has his own trinity, dragon, beast, false prophet, and out of this, their mouths come three spirits, unclean spirits, fallen angels, and they have a message, and their message is to go out to the world as, all, as well to gather them against God, to gather them in rebellion against God. And so I like how Kenneth Cox summarizes this for us. He says, Babylon refers to a spiritual confederacy 
made up of the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. And you say, hang on a minute, Sharissa. Why is it now the land beast? And then in verse 14, we, oh, sorry, verse 13, it says, and out of the mouth, it talks about a false prophet. So how does Kenneth Cox come to this conclusion here that it's the sea beast, the land beast, and the dragon? Well, the land beast is also called the false prophet because the Bible describes the earth beast in Revelation 13 as looking like a lamb, but speaking like a dragon. So it's a false prophet because it looks Christ-like, it looks lamb-like, but it is not lamb-like, it's speaking like a dragon. It is a false prophet. Does that make sense? Yes, okay. So you have here, you've got the dragon, the beast, the dragon, the sea beast, and the earth beast or false prophet. We have Revelation 12, and it's the, the dragon representing paganism or spiritualism. Again, how do we come to this conclusion that the dragon represents paganism? Well, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, and I didn't put this on the screen, but we find an interesting reference here. The Bible says in Revelation 12, verse 4, says his tail, well, maybe I should read from verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as she was born. Now also notice what it says in verse 9 of the same chapter, Revelation 12 verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So the dragon is the devil and Satan. But Sharissa, you've put on the screen that the dragon represents paganism. How do you come to that conclusion? Well, back in verse 4, it says that the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child. Who's the child? Jesus. Jesus is the child as soon as it was born. Friends, how did the devil try to destroy Jesus when he was born? King Herod, through pagan Rome. So therefore, that's how we get this. Paganism, spiritualism, all as a result of sat satanic influence. Right here, the sea beast, uh, Revelation 13, representing papal Rome. And we looked at the clear identifiers there, and there are more, but we just looked at a couple of those very briefly at the beginning. And then there's the earth beast and the false prophet, Revelation 13, also referring to apostate Protestantism, which makes an image to the beast, that is, it becomes like the sea beast in character. And we explore that more in our next session tomorrow. So I, I pointed out to you that the false prophet speaks like a lamb. Sorry, looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. It's really a sheep in wolf's, no, a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a false prophet. And friends, in the same way that the Godhead has the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Satan creates his own trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. But this satanic, unholy trinity is, friends, what the Bible calls Babylon, and I was absolutely amazed to discover this. I've just put all of these references on the screen. For those who are listening to this, friends, Satan has, he is out to deceive the world. He has set himself up to be the God of this world in place of God. And look at what he's got. Not only does he have his own trinity in Revelation 16, 13, but Revelation 2, 9 talks about the synagogue of Satan. He's got his own synagogue. He has his own ministers in 2 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5. He's got his own doctrines, the doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4, 1. He has his own sacrificial system, 1 Corinthians 10, 20. His own communion service, 1 Corinthians 10, 21. His own gospel, Galatians 1, 6 through 8. His own throne, Revelation 13, 2. His own worshippers, Revelation 13, 4. His own false teachers, 2 Peter 2, 1 and his own false prophets. And Matthew 24 tells us about that. 
that amazing to you? I mean, he has fully and completely set himself up. And that is why, that is why it is so important for you and I to be studying God's word and to be familiar with what God says. Because if we don't, we are setting ourselves up for deception. How else can we be sure that Babylon is, is made up of these, this satanic trinity? Very interesting. Revelation chapter 16 verse 19 gives us another clue. Revelation 16, 19. It says here, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So friends, notice that the Bible says that when Babylon falls, it falls into how many parts? Three parts, because she is made up of three parts. We generally, though, refer to the papacy above all other false religions because this system claims to represent God on earth. And so, friends, as we continue to consider the second angel's message, we've now identified Babylon. But what does the angel say concerning Babylon? It says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Now, fallen. What does this mean? Well, as John saw this tremendously powerful, popular, uh, transcendent organization, he was filled with wonder and amazement. And you know what? Babylon was a beautiful city. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon is considered to be one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It was a magnificent city, an incredible city. And throughout the Bible, no, I take that back, throughout the book of Revelation, Every time we find reference to Babylon, it is referred to as Babylon the Great. It's, it's great is often consistently applied to spiritual Babylon as well. But they say pride goes before a fall, and God's message to the world at the end time is that Babylon is fallen. And to emphasize the point, the angel said this twice. Has anybody here been to London? Oh, just... Bailey and myself. Well, um, I love London. Do you enjoy London? Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. Everywhere you go in London, you point the camera and it's just a beautiful picture. Every street is beautiful and it's just got so much character. I loved it. I had six hours to spend in London when I was there and I had no idea where I was. The only reason I knew where I was was because as I was walking along a street, I ended up bumping into a statue of Sherlock Holmes and I know that Sherlock Holmes in the fictional uh, story, he lived on Baker Street and I was on Baker Street. That's the only reason I knew where I was. And I hopped on a double-decker bus there in London and I went and saw all the sites, Westminster Abbey, we saw Buckingham Palace, um, Big Ben, but the best part of all was the discovery I made as we were on this bus. We saw London Bridge and it is not falling. It has not fallen down. It is still standing. That was a shock to me. I think we're always singing, London Bridge is falling down, but it's still there. It hasn't fallen. Babylon, on the other hand, I want you to know is a different story. It has well and truly fallen. The language that is used here is judgment language. Do you remember how Nebuchadnezzar and his story and how God humbled him through a series of dramatic events? And he ends up praying one of the most beautiful prayers in all the Bible. Remember that? Well, the story of his grandson was a very different story. The Bible tells us that one night Belteshazzar and his courtiers were having a drunken party out of the vessels that they had taken from the temple. And as they're drinking and having a party, uh, the Bible tells us that a hand comes and starts writing heaven's verdict of Belteshazzar's Babylon on the wall. And the verdict, I paraphrase, was this. You have been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. You remember that? Well, friends, this message that we're studying right now is really, it's like heaven's handwriting on the wall for spiritual Babylon as well. Like Babylon of old, spiritual Babylon has been weighed in the balances of heaven and she has been found wanting. Why is she fallen? 
Well, the Bible actually tells us in the verse of the, in the second angel's message, the Bible says, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So what's this? The wine of the wrath of her fornication. Well, this is the great sin with which she has been charged. Now, the Bible speaks of the union of marriage as a very sacred one. And it represents, it's, it's sacred and it is used to represent the enduring character of the relationship that Jesus has with his church, that Christ has with his church. Friends, God has enjoined himself to his people by a solemn covenant. He has pledged himself to us and, and we, God's people, pledge themselves to him and to him alone. And I just want to share some verses with you. I'm going to have to go to our Bibles for these. Hosea, Hosea chapter 2 and verse 19. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19. God says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. Again, notice uh, Jeremiah 3, verse 14. Jeremiah 3, verse 14. It says, Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you one from a city and two from a family and will bring you to Zion. Isn't that beautiful? He says, I am married to you. That's how God refers to his relationship with his people. And you know what? This same imagery is even picked up in the New Testament. If we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul employs the same imagery here when referring to the church and her relationship to Christ. And so friends, because this is how God feels about us, because this is how God relates to his church, he likens unfaithfulness of the church to himself as being likened to the violation of the marriage vow. That's a powerful thought. And so friends, when we permit our love and affections, our respect and our confidence that should be given to Jesus, when we allow this to go to another, when we allow this to go to the things of this world, friends, God, we break his heart because he likens it to the act of spiritual adultery which is again very powerful and I want you to notice with me uh, just listen to how this is touchingly portrayed uh, the words of God in Ezekiel Ezekiel 16 Ezekiel 16 and we're going to read verse 8 and then verses 13 through 15 beautiful how he describes this when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord. Verse, verse 13. Uh, thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, the Lord says the Lord God. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. So you can hear the, the heart of God there as he expresses how he feels about how his church treats him. And you know what? Even in the New Testament, again, James chapter 4, verse 4, we find the same language, uh, the same language addressed to professing Christians 
who seek the friendship of the world above the favor of God. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So friends, when the Bible says that Babylon has committed fornication, it is sign language for saying that Babylon has embraced other lovers instead of Christ, embraced other lovers in place of Christ. John describes this in Revelation 17 when he sees that woman riding, uh, dressed like a harlot, on whose forehead is the name Babylon, representing an apostate church, riding on a beast, representing a kingdom or state. And friends, the Bible tells us in that second angel's message that she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her, of her fornication. In other words, Babylon's apostasy is worldwide. It is not local. It is worldwide. All nations have drunk. Again, another reminder of why it's so important for us, if the world is drunk, to go to the word of God for truth. This is the only place we can find the truth. And what is this wine that she uses to intoxicate the world and to, into committing this great sin against God? Revelation 17.4 gives us a very important clue. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. What? And the abominations and what is this filthiness of her fornication that she uses to seduce the world? Well, friends, that's a Bible study in itself. Uh, there are many things in the scripture that God refers to as an abomination in his sight. And I'm just going to highlight four uh, just to give you uh, an idea. Idolatry in Deuteronomy 7, 25-26 identifies how God feels about idolatry. Uh, it's the second commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. So God made it very clear that his people were not to have idols and they were not to worship idols. They were not to have anything to do with idols. And Jesus emphasizes this when he walks this planet as well. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's what we should be doing. But you know what? Today, you can see idols, literal idols in churches today. People bow to idols. People worship idols, revere graven images. And that's something that's very clearly, the Bible says, is an abomination to God. But not even just on that level, if we take it even deeper, friends, what about spiritual idolatry as well, which sometimes can creep into our hearts and into our lives? Because when you think about it, anything that I put before my God is an idol. Anything that I love, that I, that I want with all my heart is an idol. Anything that I can't stop thinking about can become an idol. Anything that I give all my love is an idol. Friends, we need to make sure that Babylon doesn't live in our hearts as well. Uh, not only this, what about the Bible talks about spiritualism as something that God considers to be an abomination. Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. Um, in Israel, all that were known to consult familiar spirits or the spirits of the, of the dead, they were put to death. And that's just one reference. There are many references, very, very strong references to this in, in the Bible where God says, have nothing to do with, with witches and, and those people that consult the spirits. Why? Because when you die, the dead know not anything. So those people who consulting with the so-called departed or deceased, they're not talking to the deceased. They're talking to unclean spirits. They're talking to fallen angels. And God says, do not do that. It's very dangerous. In fact, the very first person to ever preach the, a sermon on the immortality of the soul, the idea that you don't actually die when you die, you just keep on living, was the serpent. Back there in the Garden of Eden, he tells Eve, you shall not surely die. And yet, remarkably, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul is one that we now today find rampant in Christendom. It is in the church. It's in churches. Both uh, the Catholic and the Protestant world virtually is united on the fact that 
you know, the dead do not really die. We believe in the immortality of the soul. That's what they say. But this is not biblical. Uh, this is something that comes from Greek mythology. And uh, as I said here, the devil himself was the very one who spun that lie. And if you think about it, the first angel's message gives us very supportive evidence for how wrong the idea is of the immortality of the soul. Because if we are living in a time of judgment, then that means that the dead have not yet received their reward. Their reward comes when Jesus comes, right? And so it makes no sense for, the, for this to all be the way it people say it is. The doctrine of the immortality of the soul opens the door for spiritualism and that is a very dangerous thing. And of course, not only do we have this belief in the immortality of the soul, but we see it in popular media as well. Television shows, movies, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, so television shows, Charmed, Crossing Over, all these things, books. Uh, it's everywhere and we need to make sure that we have nothing to do with these things as well. We don't want to watch it. We don't want to read it. We don't want to listen to it because the Bible says that God considers this an abomination. So let's have nothing to do with it. Again, another thing that God considers an abomination is the shedding of innocent blood. Proverbs 6, uh, 16 and Revelation 17, 6 uh, help us to understand this. And uh, not only that, but sun worship is considered to be an abomination to God. Uh, the reference here is Ezekiel 8, 15 and 16. And I just want to give you an amazing fact. We told you, I told you at the beginning that the very first time we find the word Babylon mentioned in the Bible was in the book of Genesis. And do you remember who was the leader of, of well, whose kingdom Babylon was? Nimrod, I put it on the screen, shouldn't have taken it off. Well, Nimrod. Nimrod, he led a kingdom in revolution and rebellion against God. And he's a, he was a mighty hunter, the Bible tells us. And guess what? Study a little more on, on Nimrod and you discover that the people revered Nimrod so much. Oh, he was so good at what he did that they actually considered him to be a god. They thought he was like a god. And he married uh, a lady named Semiramis. And they ended up worshipping her as the goddess of fertility. And when Nimrod died, she told the people, Nimrod has gone to the sun. And so they worshipped the sun. He was the sun god, the god of conquest, the god who always went forward and never went back. And that's how Babylon began. And you know what? Babylon hasn't really changed. Today, we see that sun day has become the day that people's uh, that Sunday sacredness is another belief that comes from paganism and it's been adopted by uh, the Catholic Church and bequeathed to Protestantism as a sacred le legacy and Protestantism has openly embraced the day and I just wanted to share this quote with you from the Great Controversy page 588 uh, by the way Sunday sacredness will pay a, play a very important part in the third angel's message, which is in the next presentation, but great controversy. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. Roman Catholics, Protestants, and worldlings will alike accept the form of godliness without the power. They will see in this union a grand movement for the conversion of the world and the ushering in of the long-expected millennium. So of all the abominations that we can find that God identifies for us, it says, this is an abomination in my sight, these two, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness are the two great errors that Satan is going to use to be foremost in bringing the world together to unite them in and under his deceptions. And again, we find that in Revelation 14:8, she, Babylon, who has fallen, she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That word made is important for us to note because it means it means that she has enforced this as well. It's a it's a term of enforcement. There will be a it's not exactly a free will thing. She makes them. Now, when she does this, she doesn't think that she is bringing wrath, the wrath of God on anybody. 
In fact, she thinks in offering her wine to the nations, she is, she is suggesting to them that drinking this wine will bring peace. However, that's, I get that from Revelation 13, 12. However, drinking this, this wine brings down the wrath of God upon, upon the world. Now, Proverbs, Proverbs 28, verse 9 makes this statement. It says, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So Babylon thinks, you know, it's okay. We come and drink this wine. Let us all come together in peace and unity and unite on these false doctrines. But really, in the sight of heaven, even the prayer of, of a person who is, who is a, participating in abominations, even that is an abomination to God. Very strong language. So friends, as you can see, we're studying a very serious message. And the wine that intoxicates the nations, it represents... Uh, the false doctrines that corrupt the truths of the Bible. Babylon is said to be the mother of harlots. And if she is the mother of harlots, then she has daughters. And of course, by these we find symbolized churches or bodies of believers that cling to her doctrines and traditions and follow her example, sacrificing God's truth and God's approval in order to form an unlawful alliance with the world. And so I've got on the screen here the second angel's message announcing the fall of Babylon therefore applies to the broad spectrum of false religion in the world today. Now, question. Have you ever tried to reason with a drunk? Ever talked to a drunk person before? Some of you nodding, yeah. Some very interesting conversations you can have with um, people who are intoxicated. <laughs> I have a friend who calls me every time he gets very drunk and, and every time he gets very drunk it's like he has this great conversion experience. He'll call me and he'll be in tears and he, and he, he says I want to change and we, have pr we pray together. He has prayed for me while <laughs> he's been heavily drunk. I pray for him and uh, then I won't hear from him for a while until the next time he's really drunk and really, <laughs> you know. But it's very hard. I try and tell him, you know, you've got to stop this. You've got to do this. And it's very hard to reason with somebody who is drunk. Well, friends, God says the whole world is drunk. The whole world has, has drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Friends, the, the thinking of the whole world is mushy. Their reactions are slow. They are so drunk and so addicted to the false teachings of Babylon that they can no longer distinguish between truth and tradition, between the holy and the unholy, and they can no longer distinguish between what God says and human philosophies. And so since Babylon's cup is so full of false teachings and in order for us to be sure that we will not be led astray in a time like this now is the time for us to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of god now is the time for us to study god's word or else we may find ourselves living by the word of the dragon instead of following the lamb at the end of time and by way of interest wine in the bible is also a symbol of covenant of a covenant you remember that jesus blood is the sign of the new covenant jesus this is why when he was in the upper room and at the last supper he held he holds up the cup the wine and he says from the fruit of the vine he says in matthew 26 28 for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins friends jesus makes a new covenant with us a new covenant based on his promises to us and not our promises to him. He promises to write his law on our hearts so that we might have everlasting life. Isn't that beautiful covenant that Jesus makes with us? But guess what? While Jesus makes a covenant with us that it promises eternal life, Babylon because she is participating in all of these fornications which are uh, and in, sorry, in all these abominations, which are very clearly things that God detests, she is making a covenant with death. And you say, how, how can this be? Well, friends, the wages of sin is death. She is in participating in sin and enjoying it. She is drinking wine. She is making a covenant with death. And you think about it. Every time you and I make an excuse for sin, 
we too are playing, we are making a covenant with death, with the devil himself who was the murderer from the beginning. We are making a philosophical agreement with sin, with Satan. We are hushing up sin when the wages of sin is death. And God wants us as his people to not have anything to do with the wine of Babylon. Don't have anything to do with sin. He wants us to stay clear because it's dangerous and it will hurt us. Sin has ruined men. It has ruined women. It has ruined angels. Sin has occasioned every grief, every sorrow, every tear. It's dug every grave, built every coffin, woven every shroud, enlarged every cemetery. It's bad. The Bible makes it very clear. The wages of sin is death. And there is only one who can save us from this terminal sickness called sin, and that is Jesus. And faith in Christ alone, who became our sin bearer, and that he might become our sin pardoning Savior, who took away our sins, that we might have his righteousness. He is the only one who could save us. And I like to think about this because in... uh, Florence, people today go there to see Michelangelo's famous sculpture of David. Very beautiful sculpture, and he was a very gifted man, Michelangelo. But you know what the history behind that sculpture was? That was actually made, it was chiseled out of a a rejected stone, a forgotten piece of stone. In fact, 50 years before he got to it, that stone lay in a yard that a previous sculptor had come to and he had tried to make something of it, but he made a couple of mistakes and oh, he just left it. And so this rock just sat there in this yard until Michelangelo came along, looked at it and he saw he could make something beautiful out of it. And I think that's the way that God looks at us. You know, sometimes we, he, we think our lives have been ruined by sin, but friends, God is not helpless among what we consider to be the ruins of our lives. And he is able to make something beautiful out of us as well. And for that reason, we need to go to him. And I want to share this quote with you. Desire of Ages, page 439. When we see Jesus, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, working to save the lost, slighted, scorned, derided, driven from city to city till his mission was accomplished. When we behold him in Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood and on the cross dying in agony, when we see this, self will no longer clamor to be recognized. Looking unto Jesus, we shall be ashamed of our coldness, our lethargy, our self-seeking. We shall be willing to be anything or nothing so that we may do heart service for the Master. We shall rejoice to bear the cross after Jesus to endure trial and shame and persecu- or persecution for his dear sake. We need to keep our eyes fixed on the Lamb so that we might follow him. And you say, well, Sharissa, that's a nice quote and that's a beautiful quote, but I'm thinking about this message that we've been studying and the second angel's message and I'm struggling to see how this is, could be part of the everlasting gospel. I mean, I don't see Jesus in this message, even though I've just <laughs> shared a little bit of that there. But anyhow, friends, a message that's got to go to the world will do no good if Jesus is not in it. Jesus must be in this message. So Spurgeon used to tell a story. I like Spurgeon. He was one of the greatest Baptist preachers, in fact, if not the greatest, that the world has ever seen. He's just an amazing man. He loved Jesus. And Spurgeon used to tell a story about a young preacher. It was one of his first sermons and he preached and he had a mentor sitting in the back of the church. And as soon as the sermon was over, he went to his mentor and he said to his mentor, so what did you think of the sermon? And the mentor said, well, it was poor. And the young man said, well, why did you think my sermon was poor? He said, because there was no Christ in it. And the young man said, but there was no Christ in the text. How can I preach Christ when there was no Christ in the text? And the old man said, Well, do you not know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? Yes, said the young man. So he said, from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures. That is Christ. Brother, your business when you get to the text is to say, Now, what is the road to Christ? then preach a sermon running along the road towards Christ. And then Spurgeon would add, 
I have never yet found a text that doesn't have a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one that hasn't a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master for the sermon cannot do any good unless there is the savor of Christ in it. So where's the good news in the second angel's message? What, what has Jesus got for us here? Well, friends, I don't know if you noticed, but of the three angels' messages, the first one is given with a loud voice, the third one is given with a loud voice, but the Bible doesn't say that the second one is given with a loud voice. It just says, and, us, and another angel followed. So why does the second angel's message not come with a loud voice? Is it because it's a secret? No, because this message has got to go to the world. So why? Well, friends, it is because this message is taken up again later. In Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, this time not just with a loud voice, but with great authority. And I'm going to read it to you. Let's read together Revelation 18. Uh, verses 1 through 2, 3. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon is fallen, uh, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, that's the second angel's message, and has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison for, uh, for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Friends, God's people under the power of the latter reign, will give this message this time. But did you notice that in this rendering of the second angel's message in Revelation 18, there's a lot more detail. Did you notice that? So why is the extra detail there? Because, friends, when the, when the message concerning Babylon was initially given, the fall of Babylon had not yet been fully complete. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, but it had not yet fully matured in its fallen state. By the time we get to Revelation 18, Babylon is very fallen. It, it, its corruptions have come to completion. It's so, it is, it's the corruptions, sorry, let me say this again, are more widespread and even worse. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Verse 8, uh, what does it say here? Turn back. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. So amazing things here. And again, you're probably saying, Sharissa, where is the gospel here? Well, let me share it with you. Friends, every negative statement here highlights a positive truth that we must share with the world. Yes, Babylon is fallen, but God has raised up a movement, a church at the end of time. Yes, the kingdom has fallen, but God's kingdom has not fallen. Amen. I will amen myself. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, come out of her, my people. God is calling his people out of Babylon and into his true church. That is good news. And by the way, notice God says, come out of her, my people. God does not say go out. He says, come out. We just read Babylon has become the dwelling place of demons. God is not there. He's not in Babylon. Come out of her, my people. God is in the process of being forced out of Babylon because of the choices and the abominations that are there. And then she has made all nations to drink of the wine, the false teachings. Well, friends, God's true church will take the everlasting gospel to the nations, to the whole world at the end of time. And that is gospel news. That is good news. Jesus has a rescue plan in mind. He, this, this evacuation call to come out of Babylon, friends, it is an invitation to come into a knowledge of all truth and to, and to come to know Jesus as he wants us to know him in his word. Amen. I love that. And by the way, the announcement of the impending seven last plagues means that there's still time 
for people to leave Babylon as well. Now, God has his faithful people everywhere. And I want you to know they're in Babylon as well. God, that's why he says, come out of her, my people. He is not content to leave his people in confusion. And that's why he says in John 10 verse 16, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. There are many beautiful, sincere people who uh, have, who just don't know the truths that we know. They don't understand. They have drunk of the wine of Babylon and they just can't see clearly. And God is calling us to go and to share what we know. Because listen, if God could change Nebuchadnezzar, that pagan king, if God could get through to him, then God can get through to anyone. Amen. And uh, back in Australia, I work for a Bible school and I communicate with people who have lots of Bible questions. And I have this friend that I, I don't even know what she looks like. We communicate on the phone. I ring her up, ask her how she's going with her Bible studies and we talk. Well, I rang her just a couple of weeks ago and, and she, when, when she picked up the phone, two people picked up the phone. Her husband picked up the phone. She picked up the phone. And they were obviously having an argument because when they both realized they were on the phone at the same time, the argument continued while I was there on the phone. I waited for them to finish. Finally, the husband hangs up and then she says, oh, I'm sorry, dear. She's, she's a beautiful Roman Catholic lady, just lovely, so sincere. I'm so sorry. I just had a fight with my husband and, and I've just come to the room and I'm just trying to calm down. I said, oh, okay. So... And then she, we started talking and you know what? She, she doesn't know everything about the, about the Bible, but she loves God. And I'm sharing with her and she's asking me questions and she thinks, you know, she goes to confessional and she, she has to plan to go to confessional. And I'm telling her, well, you know what? You don't have to go to confessional. You can confess your sins wherever you are. Just little things like this that you and I take for granted. It's just revolutionary to people who don't know what, what the Bible says. But you know what? I believe that there are going to be many sincere people like that who don't even know what we're studying in heaven because God will wink at their ignorance. But if they could know the truth, the truth will set them free. It will, it will bring them into this beautiful knowledge that they would just love. And I, I know as she is studying, <laughs> she couldn't understand when she got to the lessons on um, Sunday sacredness and, and the Sabbath and the change of the Sabbath. She was a bit scared about all of that. And she told me she thinks that she didn't want to continue the studies anymore. So I rang her up and we talked and turns out her family were Lutherans. I said, oh, that's interesting. Before they became Catholics, they were Lutherans. I said, well, do you know the history of the Lutheran church and, and all that? No. So we talked about the Reformation and I shared with her all of these things. And at the end, we prayed together and, and she agreed that she'd just keep studying. We weren't going to have a Reformation. She said, I don't want to have a Reformation. I said, that's okay. No Reformations. Let's just keep studying the Bible. She's okay. <laughs> so we're studying the Bible together. And you know what? That's fine because... God is the one who changes people's hearts. God is the one who can get through to a mind that is clouded with the wine of Babylon drunk. You know, God is the one who can make her sober. So um, I pray that this inspires you. Story is told by Shelby Foote, who um, he was a historian. And he tells a story about a soldier who was wounded in the Battle of Shiloh during the American Civil War. I like telling stories about America when I'm in America. And uh, this soldier was wounded. And so he went to his commanding officer and he says, uh, what should I do? And the commanding officer says, go to the rear, you know, and have a you know, rest at the rear of the battle. Well, he goes to the rear and he comes back to his commanding officer and he says, give me a gun. This fight ain't got no rear. <laughs> it felt like the fighting was everywhere. And you know what? Today in this great controversy that we're in, the fighting is everywhere. There is no rear. We're on a battlefield. There is no escape. We are in this world and this world is a battlefield. And in every war, there are casualties. That's why we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We need to be studying his word. We need to have a fearless, rugged commitment to the God of the Bible. We need to be faithful, as was preached this morning, full of faith. And it comes from Jesus. And so I believe that Revelation 14, it's the heartbeat of the book of Revelation. And you know what? In the same way 
that when God called people to leave ancient Babylon, it looked good in Babylon, things appeared to be nice in Babylon, and things didn't look so good in Jerusalem. So too, at the end of time, things might look nice in Babylon. Things might look, oh, it's, everybody's there, it looks popular, it looks nice. But guess what? We need to follow the Lamb because God has a much better place for us that He is preparing and we want to spend an eternity with Him. Amen? Amen. So let us close with prayer and um, we'll be finished. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your love for us and for your earnest appeal for us to come out and also to call others to come out of Babylon as well. We thank you, Lord, that we can know the truth and the truth will set us free. I pray that as we continue to meditate on these things and to study them, that your Holy Spirit will illuminate our minds and help us to understand them better and so that we can share these messages with others because these are messages that you have in your heart that must reach the world and we pray that we might be the messengers who will take them. So Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you for hearing our prayer and blessing us today in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.